Amen. Good morning. You guys doing okay today? My Christmas gift to you is we're finishing James today, okay? James 5. Let's go. Let's go. Next week, we'll talk some about the incarnation, and then we'll move to the gospel of Mark. Let's pray over the word, and, and we'll, we'll dive in. So, Lord, in Jesus' most holy name, we come to worship this morning, to celebrate, to exalt you. And we ask as we study your word that you would speak to us, move us, challenge us, sharpen us. Father, if we in any way are grieving your spirit, quenching your spirit, today we ask that you would sift our hearts. Come on, we're clay on the potter's wheel this morning. Shape me. Church, I want you just to say that to the Lord this morning. Shape me, Lord. Shape me, Lord. It's in your most holy name we pray. And all the saints say amen. Amen. James 5, 19 through 20 today. C.S. Lewis was raised in a Christian home, uh, but in his teen years, he kind of walked away from the faith. He obviously was an intellectual kid, a smart kid, a well-read kid, um, and he kind of embraced the spirit of the age. And he wrote to his best friend, Arthur, who he'd he'd write to all his life. He wrote this in his teen years. He said, "Uh, I believe in no religion. There's absolutely no proof for any of them. And from a philosophical standpoint, Christianity is not even the best very much embraced kind of the ideology of his day. He wrote again and said this, superstition, of course, in every age has held the common people, but in every age, the educated and thinking ones have stood outside it. In other words, he wrote in his teen years, smart people don't believe in God. It was in his adult years that he began to teach at Oxford. He was uh, a literary scholar, was teaching English, and um, but particularly loved the Greek dramas. Uh, in this age, he met Tolkien and he was uh, sitting with Tolkien in a late evening, walking with uh, Tolkien, you know, the author of the Lord of the Rings. And he began to recite his arguments against, Christ- against Christianity, which he had held dear to for decades at this point, just kind of begins to lay out his reasoning for why Christianity was inferior and unintellectual. And in particular, he was telling Tolkien, again, you're talking about two Oxford professors. They're very highly read people. He was telling Tolkien, he was saying, we, we know that myths, uh, every culture, every uh, people group around the world, they have creation narratives and creation myths. And he was telling Tolkien, and the idea of God dying and rising, that's not even that foreign to creation myths. Tolkien simply, Tolkien was his uh, elder. Tolkien simply just began to unwind the argument and he told Lewis that every culture and every people group, they were all in, in kind of entrenched in myth because they were all reaching for something higher, something deeper. And the ideas of sacrifice and love and even resurrection, renewal, we find like in, in winter and spring, right? These themes of death and being born again, even these myths that every culture had, they're all reaching for some something higher. And what Tolkien began to argue was that Christianity was a myth, yes, but it was the true myth, the myth that every other myth hoped to be. And he said, Christianity is is myth kind of forcing itself upon history where God truly became flesh. And yes, God truly died on a tree, allowing sinful humanity to crush his holy frame. And then in three days, God got up And Tolkien just kind of with this simple, sincere truthfulness, unwound 
Lewis's arguments, and it was there that Lewis began to confess Christ shortly after. He wrote this, The old myth of the dying God, without ceasing to be myth, comes down from the heaven of legend and imagination to the earth of history. And after his conversion, he said, We must not be ashamed of the mythical radiance resting on our theology. In other words, we're not ashamed of the fact that there is some higher, mysterious, beautiful, omnipotent power that has pierced history in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, you could say, well, that's a rather simple conversation that Lewis and Tolkien had. Um, but it's these kind of simple conversations where, where deceit and doubt has gripped the intellect of man. And God, by the power of his spirit, gives us these, these kind of glimpses, these kind of short little moments where we can step into the thought processes of another person and just unpack truth. And truth sets free. Truth sets free. Now, we're going to read James today, and he's going to encourage us to be the kind of people that sincerely love those around us enough that when we see them beginning to wander from the truth, beginning to, uh, to kind of dabble in deception, when we see the saints or even people who might not yet be born again but participate in the life of church, when we see them begin to wander from the truth, James is going to say, you must be the kind of people like Tolkien who just slide into conversation and begin to unpack truth. Now, there are several implications that we'll have to talk about today, but we see this all through the scriptures. We see Apollos being a great preacher, but Priscilla and Aquila saying, look, man, you don't quite have the full gospel. Sit down, let us teach you for a while. We think of the book of Galatians. The epistle of Galatians is the like fieriest thing that Paul wrote. Frustrated. Remember in chapter 3, he opens chapter 3 by saying to the Galatian church, who bewitched you? What is he saying? How did you end up in such deception and error? And we live in a day where, where, where we really believe that if anyone ever confronts me or, or calls me out on deception, that in some way they're insulting me. And James is going to teach us today that confronting people as they begin to slide into deception is not only love, it's Christian duty. Paul picks up his pen and just lets it fly to the Galatians. Now, let's read the text because you guys just got me yakking now. We're going to be here all day if I'm just talking. James chapter 5, we're reading today verse 19 through 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings a sinner back from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. First, let's just acknowledge that this is the last idea in the epistle of James. So we're fully in the conclusion. And let's also acknowledge that at times in James, James has been very confrontational. When we got to chapter 4 and 5, we said that he was very much in prophet mode, where he's just kind of rebuking uh, the rich folks. He's rebuking the oppressors. And there are seasons where James is talking to the unbeliever, and there are times in the epistle where he's very much talking to the believer. Now, he opened this phrase by saying, my brothers. So that is kind of a delineation in the book of James. Now he's talking to the church, my brothers. And he's encouraging the church to participate, 
a kind of mutual care for one another. Again, there's several implications to this idea that we need to unwind, but let's just acknowledge first that we live in a Western society that is very individualistic. And James is saying, kind of the last thing he wants to say to the church is, hey, my brothers, let me remind you that you need to care about one another. Not only should you care about one another, but you should keep a kind of pastoral watch over the souls of the saints you love. He's not after the church participating in a Western passing relationship, but he's encouraging the saints to practice what the scripture calls koinonia, which is a deep spirit level fellowship in the person of Jesus Christ. And in koinonia, it's deeper than any, any, any club. It's deeper than the Kwanas. It's deeper than the Masons. It's deeper than any fellowship on the basis of sports or hobbies. Koinonia is bought by the blood of Jesus. And here we participate in a kind of union that is uniquely Christian, uniquely holy, and that you are uniquely responsible for. Responsible to love and care for the saints. To snatch someone from the grip of deception, James says, is to save them from death. Now, let's unpack just a little bit of the... There are some theological nuances that come out of this text. And if you'll give me roughly four hours and 45 minutes, I'll do it for you. No, I'll do it quickly. Let's just unpack the kind of nuances quickly. If anyone among you wonders, if anyone among you, so my brothers, if anyone among you wonders. Now, with the church being the established audience, right, we're talking to the church, we're forced to ask the question, what does he mean by wonders? What does he mean by wonder? Now, the, the Greek word he uses for wonder here is the word planeo. And I just want to show you a few times how it's used in the New Testament and other areas that kind of help us get a good grip on what he means by wonder. So let's look just quickly at Matthew 22, verse 29 through 30. Jesus says to the Sadducees here, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. This is where the Sadducees say to Jesus, you know, if a brother has seven brothers, and he dies, and so the next brother in line marries his wife, and then he dies, the next brother in line marries his wife, and ultimately the wife at some point is the wife of seven different brothers. So they say to Jesus, Sadducees don't believe in resurrection, so they're trying to unpack the resurrection for Jesus. They say to Jesus, so if you really believe in the resurrection, whose wife is she? And Jesus says, you're wrong, because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. Now when he says you're wrong, he's using the word planeo, you're deceived, you've wandered from the truth. And your wandering is causing you to participate in a sect, an entire religious sect, that is resisting Messiah. John 7, 45-47. This one's fun. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees. So we have officers who come to the religious leaders who said to them, and the religious leaders say to the officers, Why didn't you bring him? Why didn't you arrest Jesus? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like that man. So the Pharisees say to the officers, have you also been deceived? And it's the same word here. Have you also been led astray? One more. Mark 13, verse 4 through 6. Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. So false Christ will rise and they will cause others to wonder, to be deceived, to be led astray. And what we're struggling, what we're kind of stumbling into as we try to unpack the word planao is that the idea of wondering is deception. It is believing lies, 
But from a biblical perspective, deception always leads to an expression of, of not only not believing the truth, but not practicing the truth. And uh, I have Moiter here, a scholar, who says, it is impossible, just listen to this quote quickly, it is impossible to, in Scripture to make truth a mere matter of holding some propositions or creedal statements in our heads. Truth is a living thing. When it grips our minds, it changes our life. If we claim to know the truth, then the Bible would require us to prove our claim, not only by reciting the creed and understanding it, but by the evidence of a life matching the truth. So we see that biblically speaking, to know the truth is not only to agree with a doctrinal statement, but knowing the truth means you agree with the doctrinal statement and then you bear the fruit that the doctrinal statement requires you to bear. So to, to agree that, that God is one yet three persons. We, we believe doctrinally in the Trinity. We believe doctrinally in the deity of Jesus Christ. To call Jesus God requires you to obey him, to live a life surrendered to him, a life of love and worship. But note, when you begun, when you, when you step down a path of deception, beginning to wonder, you're not only wondering from creedal truth, but you're wondering from the life of truth, the person of truth. Think with me of 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 16 through 18. Paul says this to Timothy. Avoid irreverent babble. Some of us need to hear that today, okay? Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk, it'll spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth. Notice his language here. Irreverent babble, it causes this kind of disease-like spreading. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth. They say the resurrection has already happened and they're upsetting the faith of some. Irreverent babble leads people into ungodliness, spreads like gangrene, causes people to swerve from the truth. Here in the New Testament, we find two individuals within the communion of the saints who have swerved from the truth and they're upsetting the faith of many. Teaching that disrupts the saints and causes many to walk away from the person of Jesus. So, we have a scenario here. James tells us that some wonder, paneo, and this produced quite a bit of controversy and confusion. And then we're forced to take another 45-minute detour to talk about a theological category that's now brought to the surface of the text that is, that is just important. And it's the idea of apostasy. So if some wonder, what does he mean by wonder? And what it, is apostasy uh, a thing that happens in the church? Now, the Reformed perspective has always taught what's called perseverance of the saints. That would be the P to the acronym TULIP. Perseverance of the saints, said in a very crass way and, and not quite nuanced enough, would be the idea of once saved, always saved. It's not, once saved, always saved does not communicate what the Reformed tradition teaches. Perseverance of the saints is the idea that those who are truly born again, if you've truly experienced salvation, salvation is a historical fact that has happened to you. So if you are forgiven, you are forgiven in history. You have been given a new heart, a new soul, a new spirit in history that you don't unbe born again. The idea in the Reformed tradition is that Jesus says, 
My sheep, John 10, 27 to 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So to the, to the reformed uh, fathers, they would say our salvation is kept by Jesus. And, and, and no, Jesus will allow no one to pluck us from his hand. Um, salvation is more than, we need to hear this because this is kind of taught, especially through the South. Salvation is more than praying a prayer after someone and then walking out of the room unchanged and then claiming that you are somehow now safe. Like it can happen that way. But if you pray the prayer after someone in faith, there's a historical event a spiritual transaction, a radically re- radically life-changing renewal that takes place there in that moment, and you don't leave the room the same. Amen. But when you embrace the idea that all we're doing is repeating a creed after me, then maybe you can slide in and out of it. But it's never what the church really believed. And so, again, the, re- the Reformed position is it's more than a confession. And so you could say, to, if you said to John Calvin, for instance, well, what about apostasy? James says, is anyone wonders from the truth that we need to try to snatch them back? And the Reformed perspective almost always responds with 1 John 2.19. This is actually a rather tight argument. In 1 John 2.19, John says this, they went out from us. So some people in the church, they left the, they left the congregation of the saints. They gave up on Christianity. But John says, but they were not of us. They wandered, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Now, that's the idea of perseverance of the saints. If you're truly born again, you'll persevere. You'll continue with. Now, I'm, I'm a fan of this line of thinking. I, I'm much more comfortable in the Reformed perspective here than the counterpart, which would be the Arminian or the Wesleyan perspective. The Wesleyan perspective or the Arminian perspective embraces the idea of apostasy with virtually no nuance. So it comes to a text like 2 Timothy verse 4, 3 through 4, in which Paul says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Hebrews chapter 3 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But the author of Hebrews says, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For if we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence from the end. Now, the traditional Wesleyan perspective that most of us were raised in says that apostasy is a thing and that people can be saved Fall away, resaved, maybe fall away again. Maybe you've come to the altar 24 times and you've been baptized 32. Um, I don't find that to be the heart of the New Testament. Though, though, I, I think I'm much more comfortable with reform position. If you're born again, God's going to keep you. Stop worrying about being unsaved every week. Confess your sin when you're struggling, man. Maybe you need to come to the altar and confess sin and repent, not get resaved and pray the prayer again. I, I'm comfortable in that position. On the other hand, the, the teaching of the New Testament to the church is 
there is such a thing as wondering. Now, the distinction that's come to the surface now, sorry, I'm in super teacher mode. I'll yell in a minute, okay? For sure. Some of you guys just want to yell and I'll get there. Um, The distinction that rises to the surface is what theologically has been called, historically, the visible church. I want you to say it with me. Visible church and invisible church. That distinction would be thus. The visible church is everyone in the room today. The visible church is everyone in our community who participates in any way in the life of a congregation. We hold a a picnic and everybody shows up for chicken. Okay? Just because you like chicken doesn't mean you're a member of the invisible church. Okay? Um, Just because you enjoy the fellowship or the music or you like to hear, you, you may even be a member of a local congregation, but that still doesn't really mean you are a member of the invisible church. The invisible church are those people who have truly been born again in Christ Jesus. Now, what that distinction creates in the life of everybody is this. Everybody, I mean every church congregation. Is that we will always have, in our midst, people who are truly born again. You've walked with Jesus for 30 years. You're hot in your heart. We'll always have people who are recently born again. We'll have people who are coming to faith. They're learning the doctrine. Maybe they haven't quite been born again yet, and they're still kind of in this infancy state. We will have people who have been born again three years ago and now struggling in sin and need to be discipled and need to be. So with that variety, that spectrum of visible church who we love and celebrate and cherish and care for and the idea of invisible church, the, the, what unravels from that, what rattles out is that no matter how you slice it here, you can slice it from the reformed perspective and say only those who persevere are Christians. Well, and I would lean that way. Well, okay, well, you've still got people in your church who are not truly born again, so deal with it. You could slice it from the Armenian perspective, the Wesleyan perspective, and say people can fall in and out of salvation. you got the same problem. you got invisible, visible, people wondering, unwondering. The issue still remains. So whether, whether you shake it out to the right or to the left, we can mock arena all day if you want. The problem still lies on the table. We are called to care for the people in the room, and none of us know with certainty who is and is not truly a member of the invisible church. I would say this. You need to know with certainty whether or not you are a true member of the invisible or invisible church. You need to know that you know that you belong to Jesus. But just because the person sitting next to you says they believe, that doesn't, you don't know that they're truly a member of the invisible church. And if, if any in the congregation wander, the question can't, we can't get into this theological debate of whether or not they're saved or, or, or unsaved. We're, we're talking about a generation that's really participating in, in what's called, um, deconstruction. Okay. So many of your kids grew up in the church. They loved Jesus. Their whole youth, they sang songs. They prayed for the sick. They went off to college, they watched a lot of TikTok, and now all of a sudden they're theologians. And they're walking away from the faith. And everyone wants to have an argument about whether or not they were really saved in their teen years. You can have it if you'd like. I'd suggest that we start participating in the snatching process. Okay, so what I'm trying to do is to get us to leave the realm of what's really happening in the wondering. It's a worthy conversation to have. And let's acknowledge that Whatever you believe to be happening, I lean towards the Reformed perspective. Whatever you believe to be happening, we still have to deal with the fact that the happening happens. Okay? So from there, 
Let's think back simply to James's instruction. You who bring someone back from wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Saving his soul from death speaks of the final death. He's very much speaking, almost all commentators agree. Here he is very much talking about hell. The second death, sometimes it's called in the New Testament. When you, when you snatch someone from wandering, you are snatching them from eternal destruction. And so he calls us to be people. Let's just unpack this clearly. He calls you to be snatchers, okay? If you're going to snatch people from deception, one, you've got to know your Bible. You cannot snatch people from deception if you don't know the truth. You have to know the truth. You have to know it. You have to love it. You have to meditate upon it. How is Tolkien able to say to Lewis, hey, your argument kind of, forgive me, I'm being so crass now. Your argument kind of sucks. Because he's thought about it before. Because Tolkien knows the truth. He's meditated upon it. Chewed upon it. So when deception pops up, you're able to just quickly unravel the lie. You have to know the truth. Now, what's the problem with this base proclamation? As we live in a day when our church life has become very individualistic, and what we really want out of church life is to feel better about me. So in our small groups, and our teaching, and our pulpits, everything is, help me feel better about me. And there's nothing wrong with that to an extent, but I'm just going to say roughly, we've got to be a people who say, give me some meat because I've got to know the truth because I've got some grandkids who I'm intent on not seeing wonder. You've got to love the truth. You can't love fads. You can't love what's popular in Christianity today. You can't just love the latest blog site. You can't love your favorite YouTube preacher. Love your word. Love it, man. The truth is always defensible. Christianity has never run from an argument. Never. Parents, know your word. The enemy, at some point in the life of your children and grandchildren, will try to cause them to wander through one of his favorite tactics called lying. False doctrine. Know what the truth is. Two, there's a very simple implication that comes out of the text, and it's this. You have to know the truth, one. Two, you have to know the saints you do life with. There's no way to know who is wondering if you only pass them by every other Sunday and give them a high five. In the American church, we're so bad about people coming and going. They've been gone for six months and nobody called. How do we snatch people from wondering if we barely know their name? Much less what's happening in their life. You say, Caleb, well, what are you arguing for? Community. I'm arguing that you make a practice of participating in the life of the congregation on a regular basis. I'm arguing that you figure out a way to be in small groups or to create a group in your work. I'm arguing that you really know people. You know people. Now, I say this all the time. I'm an introvert. I get it. I like solitude. Okay? I like, I like dark quiet. Caves, man. I like it. Introverts have a capacity and a call. I get all of that. Um, but, but you can't hide behind your personality. Your personality is not an excuse for disobedience. You hear me? And, and that comes on. And some of you guys are major extroverts and you haven't prayed in three weeks. 
Your personality is not an excuse for disobedience. Okay? And, and so, what is the command of Scripture? You're to be snatchers. In order to snatch, it's plainly, logically required that you actually know people. You care for people. You know their lives. You know their struggles. You know their ups and downs. You should know whose marriage is not in a great place and how you can help. You should know who's struggling with pornography. You should know who's, who's wrestling with selfishness. You should know your brothers and sisters. You should love them as you love yourself. Meaning, if you've got a big wound in your side, you don't just walk around ignoring it. You're going to bandage it, care for it. The same sense that if you have a wound, you, care, you should care for the wounds of your brothers and sisters. You are required biblically to know people. You say again, I grew up in the West. And we hang out on the back porch. I don't care. We don't, we don't, we don't, we don't really talk to people. I always laugh when we have uh, like Latino members in our congregation. And they're like, you don't have to call before you come. Just come. I'm like, we don't, we don't really do that. It's like, you better have an appointment. Um, I think sometimes in the life of a church, there are times where you just come. There have been times, and just be vulnerable, there have been times where people in our church have said, hey, I'm struggling with suicidal thoughts, and I'm, I'm, we're just coming. I don't, I, don't, I don't really care if I have an appointment. Um, and so if I knock on your door or kick it down, that's what you agreed to when you came to this church. Okay? <laughs> There, there are these moments where, where the saints just come, okay? Know people. And three, that leads us to the last very simple, logical conclusion. Um, you've got to know the truth. You've got to know people. And then you've got to be willing to actually confront people. Now, confrontation's hard. Totally get that. I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of it. By, by confronting people, I mean you've got, to, you've got to know when someone's going down the false road. And you've got to be willing to sit with a cup of coffee and a Bible and talk it out. Now, again, part of our culture is if anyone ever tells me what I believe or what I'm doing is wrong, they've spit on me. Get over yourself, man. Parents, right? Your parents corrected you. This is the argument of Hebrews. And you were thankful for it in the long run, right? There are times in the life of the church where saints who love you, brothers and sisters, will correct you. Don't only learn to embrace it, learn to love it. If a brother and sister, I promise you this, let me say this. I know this church pretty well, okay? I've, I've, I know these people pretty well. I promise you this. 95% of us, there are a couple wackos in the room. Let me just get that out. <laughs> Spirit of transparency. A couple wackos. 95% of people who come to you and say, man, I want to talk to you about something I saw. I saw you in the parking lot cuss your wife. I saw you in the parking lot raise your voice at your kids in a way that I'm not sure is healthy. I promise you that that 95% of our congregation is not excited about this moment. It's not like we're going, I can't wait to talk to him about this. Right? There, there's a sense in which, man, this is going to be hard. And so we come in humility. And we need to learn to watch your posture. Like you guys know all the practice, Right? When you're confronting someone, sometimes it's good to just lower your posture, to sit down, not stand up, because that feels like we're going to fight, right? I'm not raising my voice. I'm talking in humility. I'm not accusing. I'm, I'm, I'm sharing my perspective and suggesting. Learn all of those things. But if you're the person being confronted, and you should be at some point in your Christian life, why should you be confronted by the saints at some point in your Christian life? Because the enemy is going to try to have you. One of the great strengths of being in the communion 
is people are not going to let him. And you're being confronted. Learn to receive. Learn to love. Learn to listen. Learn to hear. Learn to cherish the words of iron sharpening iron. Okay, this is what James is calling us to. He concludes the letter of the church by saying this. The enemy will attempt to bring a wandering. Again, this word means deception that leads to a life that walks away from God. The enemy is going to try to do that to the community of the saints. If you become snatchers, if you become people who, who pastor one another and have hard conversations, you know the truth, you share the truth in love and in gentleness, if you become snatchers, then you will save people from hell. Now, we've got to break out of our cultural norm that says, we really just came here for this hour and a half, Caleb. I'm just saying, I don't think Jesus came to the cross just for your hour and a half on a Sunday. I think he wanted your whole life, man. The whole thing. Now, there are lots of conversations to have about how we confront. Galatians 6, you remember Galatians 6, 1 and 2 following? If anyone stumbles... Brothers, oh, they're going to give it to me. They were, they were like, you can't quote that well, Caleb, I promise you. If, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Okay, we get that, that when we go to confront, we come in gentleness. We keep watch over ourselves, lest we are tempted to. And so that kind of idea is, if I'm confronting someone for, for lust or for anger, that I come in humility and not with accusation, because sometimes when I'm confronting someone with anger who rises up with anger, what I'll find in me is anger. So we come in humility, recognizing that there is a work of the enemy trying to deceive people. And we just come with truth, not very aware that we are not above falling or stumbling ourselves. We can have good conversations about what that means. But I just, I just start there. Wondering is a possibility. However you dice it. Know the truth. Know people. Speak the truth. If we are not doing that, we are not practicing Christian community. You guys hear me? Yes. All right, let's go ahead and stand to our feet. We'll get ready to close. Worship team, come for me.